Ultimate Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And here we go. The much anticipated, never duplicated Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling. Uh, hey, man, the movie theaters are back open here in Seattle. Uh, I went to the movie theaters the other night. They threw me out for bringing my own food, but, you know, the prices are so high. Plus, I haven't had a barbecue in months. Thank you very much. Goodbye. All right. I'm throwing a flag on that one. <laughs> I'm not sure the pandemic has been good for Duff's joke writing, and I know he said he didn't have anything, so I almost think he made that up on his own like my cousin Lee used to when he was like nine years old. Uh, but anyways, we love his dedication to the joke of the week. We thank him for making us laugh or groan or whatever the hell you just did every Friday without fail. And speaking of laughs and groans, check out the latest episode of Winnipegers. Uh, Dave Spivak, me, and Ribo talk about our doppelgangers, people who look just like us. Dave has a couple pretty good ones, and uh, one that really pisses him off. It's a serial killer from Canada, actually. I've got a couple as well, including uh, a doppelganger that Ric Flair still calls me to this day. And Ribo's might be one of the best. If you want to know uh, the other celebrities and serial killers that the three of us look like and sometimes get mistaken for, check out Winnipeggers on my YouTube channel. And, of course, you can find me on YouTube and Facebook tomorrow night for the Saturday Night Special, 9 p.m. Eastern. Bring your favorite beverage, bring your questions, bring your song requests for the sing-along, and we'll have some fun together at home. But right now, we've got some more fun here. Another Talk is Jericho exclusive, rock and roll exclusive. Singer Brent Smith and guitarist Zach Myers of Shinedown have a new project together. This one's called Smith & Myers, and they're releasing their first album called Volume 1 in October but you won't have to wait that long to hear the new music because they just dropped two songs from the album today. You can hear their original called Not Mad Enough and their version of Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World, both available now wherever you stream music. And today at noon Eastern, they're debuting the new video for Not Mad Enough on YouTube. It's a pretty uh, dark, uh, deep song. Brent and Zach are talking about the new Smith & Myers project and why they chose cover songs by NXS, Neil Young, and Post Malone. Also talking about the pandemic, what they've been doing during lockdown, and what that means for Shinedown's upcoming seventh album. And Shinedown made history on Monday as well. Their latest single, Atlas Falls, hit number one on the Billboard Rock Chart. That's Shinedown's 16th number one song. And that means they now have the most number one songs in the 39-year history of the Billboard Mainstream Rock Songs chart. Think about that. You'll hear what the guys uh, feel about that, who they knocked out of that record-holding spot. Uh, plus, they got some great stories about touring with Van Halen and Iron Maiden and Kiss. Uh, singer Brent Smith and guitar player Zach Myers. Smith & Myers coming up on Talk is Jericho. Cool. Well, I mean, we could just start with how crazy has this year been? Especially for you guys who tour quite often, quite a bit, not just with Shinedown, but with, um, you know, the, the, the acoustic stuff that you guys do together. I know you do stuff on your own, Zach. Is this the longest you've ever gone without playing shows? No, the longest we ever went was between Amaryllis and Threat. We went 19 months. So that was the longest we've ever gone without playing shows. We were only going to do 30 shows this year, so it wasn't. You know, we didn't have this crazy packed year. It was more of a creative year. We knew we were going to do a Smith & Myers record. We knew we were going to start writing for a Shinedown record. So it wasn't like it – I don't know. It's like it's one of those things like when you're forced to stay home versus staying home on your own, it feels right. different. Right. You know what I mean? If we, we're, now we can't go out and play shows, but you know, if we want to not go play shows on our own, that's different. It's like so – it's kind of strange, man. It's definitely not the longest we've gone, but it, it it's a long time without us – all at least all four being in the same room you know we haven't the four of us haven't been in the same room since december 20th wow wow how is it for you brent i mean to be totally honest with you um at the beginning of the year of 2020 i arrived in los angeles right around the 15th of january i quarantined during everything in regards to the pandemic in california i was quarantined in california for about almost by the time I got out of there, I had been in quarantine for 18 weeks. Mm -hmm. But the reality was when I got to LA in the front of the year, like Zach said, we only had a handful of shows this year because it was a creative year for us. And the only reason why I say it in this way is um, I've not stopped, man. When all this went down, we were in California, me and Zach, 
and we were making Smith and Myers, which is a double record that's going to be coming out. Um, actually, this Friday is the first launch of it um, with the first two songs that are going to be coming out. But in, in all reality, where I saw a lot of people at the, the beginning of this pandemic just you know, people were afraid. They were scared. They didn't know what was going on. And I just could not wrap my head around putting my head in the sand. Mm -hmm. I needed to know what was going on, but I didn't. So I just started to educate myself. And once we were four weeks into Smith & Myers, that's when we understood, because we weren't even looking at press. We were in a studio every single day working on this album or these, these two volumes. So by the time Dave Bassett, who's the producer of the Smith & Myers project, there was a Friday that we got to the studio and he just had a different look on his face. And we were like, what's wrong with you? And he <laughs> said, they just canceled South by Southwest. And we were like, what? And started to open up our phones and look at the news as what was going on. And it was just like, bang, you know, everything got real, really quick. Mm -hmm. And so made sure that Zach got out of California, got him back to Memphis. I stayed and quarantined in California. Our producer, Dave, had to go to Hawaii, not on a vacation. He was going down there to look at a rental property. They were only supposed to be there for five days. He was coming back to the studio. He ended up being quarantined for 14 weeks. Shit. So he couldn't even come back to California. In Hawaii, and, though, which is just awful. You know? Yeah, terrible, yeah. right? But once terrible. again, though, it's like you said, if you're in Hawaii for 14 weeks because you want to be there, it's cool. If you're forced to, yeah, be, there, forced to be there, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. And I mean, I left two months ago is when I got out of California. I mean, in 40 plus days, man, once I left, I had already been on 14 different planes, you know, and then I just started moving and getting to where I needed to go. Obviously, I needed to get to Florida to be with my son. I needed to get to Tennessee to be with my parents for a minute, make sure everyone was good, my granny, so on and so forth get back to Florida, make sure everybody was good there, then made my way to Charleston, which is where I'm at now because we're in the beginning stages of Shinedown 7. But like Zach was saying, we kept rescheduling the deep dive tour. And then finally we were just, you know, all the shows were sold out, all the VIP packages were sold out. But we were like, we can't reschedule this a third time. So we just gave the money back. But in this last like week and a half, we've released the Live in London show that we had. Um, obviously, all the work that we've been doing in regards to Smith & Myers is getting ready to come to fruition this Friday. Um, you know, today was a pretty monumental moment for Shinedown um, with, the, with getting the number one on Atlas Falls. But really bringing back to Atlas Falls, that's been my whole world for the last four and a half months. Because once we developed our relationship with Direct Relief, which is a very important organization, which is one of the whole reasons why Atlas Falls has been put out into the world, if you will, um, and creating that T-shirt and that partnership with Direct Relief in regards to COVID-19 and the response we've raised because of the fan base and radio, almost $400,000 in crisis relief during COVID-19. So I've, <laughs> I've not stopped, man. What you you just ran over a, a bunch of of topics there, a bunch of things to talk about. So, Atlas Falls just hit number one. Congratulations! How many is that for you now? Seven hundred and twelve. Seven hundred eleven. It it actually is. Uh, well, I've talked enough, Zach. You can you can say the relevancy of this song and why it's important. But but how many number ones is that for you guys? It is, I don't know the exact amount of number ones. I know it's our 27th single and 27th top five, which it. I think this single put us having the most number ones on the active rock chart in Billboard history, which is crazy to A, say out loud right. and be, be a part of. And then it tied us for the most um, rock top tens of all time in Billboard chart with Tom Petty, which is like a weird thing for me. Because I'm like Tom Petty's my hero, so it's like to be to even be like in the same sentence is very odd. But it was such a weird thing too, because Atlas Falls was written in 2011. Mm. And it was written for the Amaryllis album, and it just did. We didn't. It 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 was a, it was a group of songs that didn't make it to that record to me that felt like their own record. 
And that was one of those songs. And then Brent had the idea to release it when all this, the pandemic stuff started because the subject matter was so relevant to the time that it was being released. And lyrically, it just made perfect sense. And so it's weird that today is, it's another number one. And it's, it's, it's insane to, to that feeling of, of having that billboard, I guess, accolade or whatever you want to call it, but it, it, it feels great. And it, it did a lot of great work. You know, the song, raised over $400,000 for direct relief, which I know Brent talked about, which is, you know, they they provide testing supplies and scrubs and masks and all the things that, that clinics and hospitals need for testing for this. So they're a very important organization. So the fact that we could release this song, go into the vault, give the fans something that they wanted and do something good is kind of like a double whammy. You know, it feels really, it feels really good. And, and it feels like we, we got a lot of things done with it. I think it's also important to understand because and by the way chris we appreciate you giving us this platform um to talk to you about this today no, it, absolutely. it does mean a great it does mean a great deal to us so thank you very My much pleasure. for giving us the opportunity pleasure, to talk to you but you know i i think it's important for people to understand something you know like what zach was saying yes this song was actually written eight years ago and it was during um the album writing for what became amaryllis and but I go back to the president the day that he was in the Rose Garden and he had all of the heads of these higher up corporations like Walgreens and CVS, a lot of different grocery stores. There were all these heads of, you know, commerce, if you will. And the question to everybody was or the request was, we just need you to go inside for like the next four weeks. We need to get it under control, flatten it, and then we're going to let you back out. And then they just never let you back out. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter was, is that for me, when they were doing, I remember everyone talking about, we're not asking you to go to war. We're asking you to binge watch Netflix. (laughs) That lasted for me maybe a couple of hours on a Saturday morning. And then I just got on the Internet, man, because I did not know what was going on. I didn't know what I didn't know what coronavirus was. I'd never heard of COVID-19. I didn't understand what a pandemic was. I had never heard the term social distancing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is going on? And I started to educate myself. And that's ultimately when I came across direct relief. But immediately Atlas popped into my brain because it's it's a song that inside the circle of Shinedown We've all said that we felt like that song would see the light of day eventually. We didn't realize it was going to be to this magnitude, but I have to put it back on the fan base and I have to put it back on the audience and everybody that has championed this song because of what the song represents and the partnership with Direct Relief because they are a very, very important organization. Um, because they were here before COVID-19, they'll be here after COVID-19. They're the Calvary. So how, how did you get uh, connected with them? I told everybody in the band that I wanted to create a t-shirt. I wanted to make it um, with the spirit of what Atlas Falls was. Um, from that point, I went to management and said, let's contact Direct Relief personally. It took us a moment to find someone there that actually believed it was us. Yeah. And then once we found someone there that I could speak to, uh, his name is Samir. He's been our liaison for you know going on 20 weeks now. Uh, since our partnership started with them. And we just went through how we wanted to do it and why we wanted to do it and why it was relevant. And we just started working together. Um, And the goal was the link on our website was to the shirt. You could buy the shirt and 100% of the proceeds would go to Direct Relief. And as a thank you, you could download Atlas Falls. Well, when radio came in, they asked us, they said, we understand that you have a download for this, you know, and it's a it's a thank you for buying the shirt. But could we play the song? And we said, absolutely. Just as long as you talked about why the song exists, which is helping direct relief so that we can help everybody involved in this pandemic. It's important to know that direct relief is non-biased. It has nothing to do with politics. Their sole mission is to make sure that the men and the women in the medical community and the scientific community, they have what they need um, on the ground during times of crisis, whether it's poverty, a natural disaster, a pandemic, that these men and women have what they need on the ground so that they can save as many lives as possible. And as everybody knows, at the beginning of this pandemic, those first four weeks, um, it was, you know, it was Armageddon. Yeah. 
And I mean, they were they were so important. But, you know, Direct Relief works with all 50 states and they work with over 100 countries. They're also one of the only charity sites and organizations that if you go to directrelief.org, they will give you real time where, you know, what planes they're sending with PPE or, you know, the fundamental assets that they're sending for that potential mm. crisis. They, they show you how much money has been generated in a real time. They show you where everything is going, what countries are receiving um, the aid, and it's all done in real time. So you know where your money is going to. And, you know, when you're helping Direct Relief, they show you and let you know exactly where that fundamental, you know, those resources are going to. It's amazing, and it's one of those things too. Probably because you, you know you, you released this song to help with the pandemic, and because of the pandemic, and the fact that you know a lot of bands aren't releasing new stuff right now because they don't want to quote unquote waste it because there's no touring you can do. You probably got a number one because of because of the situation. You know the song that you released because of the situation went number one because of the situation. I think yeah, Zach. If you want to reply to that. Yeah, I think I, I agree. It's, you know, like you said, I think people are kind of clamoring for content right now. You know? Yeah, agreed. Everyone's stuck at home. You know, I don't think people outside of, uh, let's call them concert people, realize how many, how big this thing is that we do. You know, there are people who go to three shows a week, no matter what. Right. You know, like these people are stuck at home and they don't know what to do. Kind of like us right now. You know, we... We're so used to being out there and you, you have two jobs where you travel, you know what I yeah. mean? Where you're like, you're crisc and sometimes crisscrossing to go from one to the next. So I think that, that, you know, that the, there are all these people who are concert people who go to three shows a week, whether it be local shows or national shows are sitting at home and, and they want content, they want new things. And that's why I'm glad this year is kind of a creative year for us. But I think that, yeah, that, that had absolutely a lot to do with the single too, because you know, I think right now is the time for other bands to go back into their vaults and release things because or, you know, if you live in the same town as each other, go in the studio and create. But we're not doing anything else right now. We can't yeah. go do what we, we can't go do what we do, which is play shows. You know, we are a touring band. We that will we'll be releasing hopefully our seventh record next year. But, you know, we're, we're known as a touring band, just like you guys are known as a touring band. So it's what it's it's a huge part if not the biggest part of what we do other than write songs. So, you know, I think that the, the people being stuck at home and, and wanting new things to listen to definitely helped out. And I think the direct relief thing helped out. And it, it's, it's a, it's just a good feeling. Today is a, today's a good day for our band. And mm -hmm. it feels really good. The fact that we did, we did something for a great cause and we, we got a number one song out of it feels, you know, there's really that's, no way to just that's great yeah. but in, inside of that also i mean the point is is that yes it's a it's a number one song but in all reality chris it's the world's number one song and what i mean by that is none of this would have happened if it wasn't for the fan base if it wasn't for shinedown nation and i'm not talking about just in the united states but from a global standpoint too the amount of um, just awareness and the help that they've given to this organization, um, whether by just sharing it out and getting people to know who Direct Relief is or actually by donating money to the cause and what have you. Um, you know, one of the things about the song was also the fact that we knew that people were scared. We knew that people were, uh, they were concerned. Um, there were a lot of variables going on. We wanted to put something out into the world that gave people a sense of optimism and hope and also understanding that we understand that this is bad right now. We understand that everybody is concerned and there's not a lot of answers to these questions, but we're going to get through it because you can't kneel to the wall. You have to figure out how to become educated. You have to figure out the questions that you need to ask in order to get the answers so that we can move forward. I don't think that people need to have a knee-jerk reaction to the idea of new normal You know, as you go into next year in 2021. If new normal means having a higher standard of sanitation during live events, that's not a bad thing. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But this idea that you'll never be able to hug each other, you're not going to be able to shake hands, or everybody's going to wear masks for the rest of their lives, I don't think that anyone should subscribe to that. Obviously, in the future, if people feel more secure to wear a mask and that's what they want to do, that's their right mm -hmm. to do that. But 
the reality is that this is a virus, and I know this because I've been educated by actual scientists and doctors that I've actually been able to talk to about this, um, where they've all said the same thing. And one of the first things they've told me is, Brent, all pandemics have one thing in common, and that is they all ended. It just mattered on how society handled that particular right. pandemic. You're not going to eradicate COVID-19. That's not the mission. The mission is to become immune to COVID-19. And that will either happen by herd immunity or it will happen by a vaccine. Um, but the fact of the matter is life is going to continue and we need to become stronger from this, not weaker mm -hmm. from this. But people really in the real world, Chris, what I've noticed outside of media, not all media, but in the real world, people are not fighting each other. In the real world, they're trying to be you know, respectful of one another. Where I'm at right now, and I understand that it's different in different parts of the globe, but man, if you really look at what's going on fundamentally around the world, people are trying to get over this. People are trying to give you know, each other confidence and hope right. genuinely person to person. At least that's what I'm seeing where I'm at. Nobody's trying to start fights or get up in people's faces and make, you know, make a hostile environment. People are trying to be respectful of one another so that we can move on and rise up from this. Yeah. And it's like you said about, about the masks. I, I don't know if you guys have toured Japan, but there, a lot of people there wore masks. I've been going there since the early 90s. And you'd always see people walking down the street, not all of them, but I'd say a good one in 10, one in 20, you know, depending if it's, you know, if it's wintertime flu season. So I think what you said is, is correct. I think people will wear masks that feel more comfortable with it, but it's not going to be, you know, uh, mandatory like it is now. It's, it'll be a personal choice if it makes you feel more comfortable. That, that's cool. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And, you know, the other thing, too, is like a lot of I don't want to name drop any major corporations. They they know who they are. And, you know, the, the reality from a promoter standpoint, because we've been speaking with a lot of promoters as well about moving into, you know, 2021. Um, you know, look, um, a lot of our people, our crew, yeah. the men and women behind the scenes, you know, uh, for example, our head of security, John, who a lot of people know in the industry and what have you, he went out and he made sure that he became COVID compliance certified. And his entire security team, all of them are COVID-19 compliance certified. What does that mean? It means basically that there is a way that they were able to, because of their connections with government and because of their connections with um, just a lot of individuals, there is a testing unit where it's not a novel virus anymore. It was novel six months ago, but it's not novel anymore. Right. So they know how it moves, how it acts, and how you need to sanitize the area, how many people can be in a certain location right now until we have a vaccine and or there is a established herd immunity. So he goes in, he's certified because he took the test that he needed to take and the understanding of the area hmm. when he brings... Um, his artist into certain like with Smith and Myers, we have three shows that we're going to be doing in September. One's already on sale. Philadelphia, we're doing it with uh, Live Nation, the drive in series with WMMR. That's 800 capacity. Um, that's the top tier. 800 cars, four people a car. Um, but there's no PA. Everything is inside the car. Me and Zach will be on stage in front of everybody, but the audio will be going through your radio oh, wow. station. Wow. But like there's a lot of regulations backstage of how we have to handle that. We also just today released um, we're doing one of these drive in shows, uh, two more, one in Scranton and one in close to Pittsburgh. But there are a lot of rules and so by doing so, we are going to do these shows, but there is a lot of compliance, man. You cannot go into these situations um, and think that it's like it was before. Mm -hmm. you, you just have to do it, at least for right now, the way that it needs to be done. But me and Zach, you know, we chose not to wait till next year to release the Smith & Myers project that we've been working on for quite a long time. This Friday is going to be the release of the first two songs of the and the announcement of the first volume so you know listen you know there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes but if you want to play live right now you got to be really really strict in how you're doing it 
let's talk about volume one. So this is something that you guys started recording pre-pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, February 20th we started. So it was right towards the end of... I got out of L.A. kind of right in, right before shutdown. So I um, we were there for three weeks recording, and then I flew home. Dave, our producer, was going to go to Hawaii right. again for five He's He owns a rental property there. Got stuck there for God knows how long, 14 weeks, 11 yeah, weeks. Yeah, 14 weeks. Horrible. Horrible to be stuck in paradise right. for that long. Uh, imagine the horror. But... um. <laughs> in California, but I mean, we got it done. You know, we originally, when Smith and Meyer started, it was a radio kind of thing. It was just the radio and the label wanted us to do 10 covers. And we didn't really want to do them as Shine Down because we already did a cover that will be will be connected to our entire lives, you know? So we didn't want to do it as Simple Shine Man. So, yeah, exactly. It was Simple Man. So we wanted to do, we called it Smith and Meyers. We did 10 songs in two days. Five of the songs were one take. Really? We recorded it. We yeah we videoed it so the videos of Smith and Myers on YouTube of the studio you're watching the take being recorded it's not like we went back in and plugged in and act like we were mm-hmm. like you're watching the actual what we recorded on the record so when it came to doing another record we really wanted to take it seriously and, and write and write some songs and but also stick to kind of what it started it and do some covers so with the two volumes there's covers and originals but I'm really proud of the original stuff just because the fact we went in. We wrote songs. Uh, we went in every day with a blank sheet of paper and came out with a song starting at about 10, 11 a.m. every day. Wrote the song and recorded the song the same day. And it was, uh, it was a very creative point in all of our lives we're doing. So I'm super proud of it. And I'm, I don't know, it's, it, it's this week now, so I'm getting a little nervous. I'm getting a little anxious to hear it. It's a really good record. And what I found, too, is it's very like easy to listen to like it goes by like that you you like you put it on and then it's like holy shit it's it's over like it really flows well it's it's a great oh, listen but but it's, but but it's most there's only three covers on it though right on volume one is there, is there some that i don't know were covers maybe there's is it oh five? they're not giving you everything chris we can't give you everything <laughs> no because i don't know what we're, if we're if we're allowed to say or not what songs you did but there's the, the, the rocket in the free world is a great arrangement that you guys did because oh, right. it's, it's just acoustic and it's such a dark, heavy song to begin with. It really lends itself to, to, to being acoustic. We kind of talked about that a lot with this because Brent wanted to do that song. And I think our, our idea of the covers on the first time we did the covers on the first record, it was more just play the covers, kind of play them how they are, do our version of them. But when it came to this one, it was more like, how would we play these songs if we wrote them? And I think, like you said, like to Brent, he really wanted to do Rockin' in the Free World, and I agreed. But those lyrics are, A, incredibly heavy, mm-hmm. B, written 35, almost 40 years ago, and still just as relevant yeah. today were then you know what i mean like to have you know I-, I talked about this before to the but- point of where neil young just sued the president of the united states <laughs> for the of the song no it's you know i don't know if you, if you can really listen to a song that- that's that great lyrically that i mean there's maybe a handful a dozen songs that still hold up when they were written to today when every lyric makes sense and i don't know i think for that song it was I don't know. He almost should have even sang an acapella. We broke it down to one instrument, but it's like you want to hear the lyrics in that song. You know, like that's that's what that song is for. The words that that come across, and I think just breaking it down the way we did made that those lyrics a little like prominent for maybe people who didn't. I've always listened to that song. It's just a rocking song. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's, it's in my car playlist. But when you really break it down like that, and you listen to those words, like what a what a deep song with heavy meaning especially that to this day is still relevant and yeah probably relevant in every section of our lives from when it was written the dynamic of that also chris is exactly what he's saying which is there's two volumes there's there's a combination here of 20 songs so there's 20 new covers and there's there so there's 10 new covers and there's 10 original songs for the very first time the reality is that for the, as Zach likes to say, and I think this is a little bit more elegant in the way that he says it, the cover material is more about a reimagining of those songs. Because we were like, 
there's no reason to go in here and play these songs exactly the way that they are. There's no point of doing that. But a lot of the songs that we picked, and it was also picked through the fan base as well, they gave us a lot of input, and then we ultimately decided on the 10 songs. But it really was about these songs that, yes, you know them, yes, you've heard of them, but it was about really uh, focusing on the lyrical content of these songs and viewing them because everything's been filmed. The entire process was filmed by our videographer, Sanjay, the, the whole time. So there was always a camera running and some of these songs will have a different meaning to people the way that we've done them, because, um, you know, the stories in these songs are, are, are quite moving. And I don't necessarily know uh, if people would have thought that the lyrics in some of these songs were as heavy as they actually are. I, I think I think some people will be surprised by the way we chose to, as Zach would say, reimagine mm. these songs. Another great inclusion is uh, is Never Tear Us Apart, the, obviously in excess. That's that's another amazing tune, that, you, and your interpretation of it is great. Uh, in excess, one of the most underrated bands t- to this day. If, if Michael Hutchins hadn't passed away, I think they'd still be playing arenas. They wouldn't be U2, but they'd be close to it. For me, I've always said what you just said which is one of the most underrated bands of all time like and honestly like how many bands you know that late in their career i mean they released elegantly wasted i think about eight months before he died right and one of their best records yeah that's such an amazing album and we've always loved that band i've always kind of messed around with that song we did it one time at sirius and we actually didn't let them release it because we were putting out our own single and when it came to making this we're like we have to do this but the Brent always made me sing it live instead of him singing it. So we came to a compromise on this where I sang the first verse and Brent sang the second. Oh, verse. cool. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, one of my top, if not top five, certainly top 10 favorite bands of all time. I just, I've always had a connection to that band. Um, I've always loved them. I, I agree with you. I mean, one of the most underrated and probably one of, top three favorite live records of all time that live from Wembley record is just mm-hmm. there's i mean that that record just energizes you and makes you feel something and i've, I've always loved that about live albums that, that where you can kind of almost feel like you're in the crowd and that's i do I'm, have to say though when eric when it was me eric and zach and we were in serious uh xm in new york they asked us to do like just do a you know any song whatever we did that song and Zach and myself like looked at Eric and was like, just rip a solo real quick, just for the for the hell of it. And he looked at us like we had nine heads. <laughs> and and dude, we knocked that out in one take. And Eric Bass played the most ripping guitar solo. <laughs> Zach was looking at each other with our jaw, like our jaws were on the ground. It was like, amazing. He just like he, Especially- he he was like, what do you mean play a solo? We were like, just whatever. And he just played the most mind-boggling <laughs> solo. Eventually, we'll release it, but it's it's pretty cool, actually. You have to have a solo though, because the sax solo is so prominent. Right. That song, you know, like you you just picture the, the you know guy coming out with at nightfall and the street light doing like a sax solo. It's like <laughs> if you don't have a solo in that song, you're like, all right, you just don't play the song. So Eric, being a bass player, I was just like, we handed him a telly and an electric. We're like you can solo, just play a solo, and he played like the coolest solo for that like it, was, it, it almost kind of mimicked the sax solo which when we do, we've done it live a couple times and i just like jokingly do the sax solo with don't don't say that you jokingly do the sax solo he mimics the the sax solo <laughs> with his mouth let's just be honest yeah. but it's quite it, extraordinary it's how he's able very to popular. morph his his voice into a saxophone <laughs> we we play a i play a game with uh with with johnny christ and 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 Gates from Avenged, and it's a perfect record. And this, the criteria for a perfect record is every song on the album has to be A minus or better. B plus, not a perfect record. So we debate and go back and forth. And Kick was one of the ones that I brought up as a perfect record. Every song yeah. on that album is, is an A minus or better. You know, it's just one of those tunes. Seven singles from it, that type of thing. Back in those days, they would release seven singles from a record, right? The yeah. whole record's a single. I mean, it's, it, yeah. you know, if you listen to that record, I know there's, we always do, there's, there's a couple songs that'll never leave our pre-show playlist ever. They've been in there. I mean, since, since I started making the pre-show music, they've been in there. One is 
What It Takes by Aerosmith. It'll always be in the pre-show playlist. The other is Rock and Roll Star by Oasis. And the last one is uh, New Sensation by <laughs> NXS. Because just that intro is one of the most energized, like, as soon as that vocal comes in, you're like, I'm getting chills talking about it. But, like, that's just, like, I'll, I'll remember where I was the first time I heard that song for the rest of my life. Like, it's just one of those songs. And that, that kick record is so amazing. I think I have, like, three copies of it on vinyl. Like, every special edition <laughs> yeah. they've ever released. Because that's what you want in a vinyl record, too. You want a record, you know, vinyl, you're not skipping songs, so you want a perfect record for vinyl. Right, exactly. When you're talking about some of the original songs on the record, and, and, and Not Mad Enough is the first song on it, uh, it it's, it's, it's such a, a killer tune. Was it hard? Not hard. But when you're putting together this record, is there any songs where you're thinking, maybe I should save this for Shinedown, or does that matter when you're doing this? type of an album you know the the only one the only riff that i wrote that i originally wrote for shutdown on this record was the riff for panic which i don't even know if that's on the first volume or not it may be on the second volume it is it's on the first volume yeah. okay so panic, the only riff that i originally wrote for shinedown but i wrote it like for amaryllis so I mean, it's eight years old it obviously wasn't making it to a shinedown record by this point so i that's kind of that's the only one i really wrote for this for Shinedown particularly, but like I said, I knew it wasn't going to make it when a song, when it comes to like not mad enough, you know, it's, we call it a song, a right and wrong song, right? It's not a political song, but it is a social commentary song. And I don't know how fans of Shinedown would necessarily maybe take that or, you know, devour was probably mm -hmm. the most political we ever got. We're not a political band. We don't make political statements and songs, but not mad enough was a song that came really fast. I was sending Brent music, after, after you know once the once the lockdown started and day was in hawaii because we were going to come back i was going to come back and finish the record but obviously i couldn't because of everything that was going on so we kept sending each other stuff and with not mad enough i mean brent wrote not mad enough that was one of the probably the quickest lyrical songs he's ever written but when it comes to like stuff like i said panic was the only thing that i had wrote for shinedown that little lick i had written for shinedown but i wrote it in 2011 for amarillo so <laughs> at this point four records later it's not making it to a shinedown record so i brought it into smith and myers and and we loved it and and that song got kind of got started that morning with that riff. so i don't think anything was necessarily we would have saved for shinedown i don't think that it was i don't think any of it is shinedown music i think it's you know right. it's anything's gonna sound like shinedown that we do because of his voice you know like you know, you have a very original voice too. So if you went and did a, it's a singer, project, right. it's going to sound like Fozzie a little bit because your voice has a, such an. It's the same as Brent. Brent's voice is so Brent that it's not going to even Smith and Myers is going to sound like Shinedown. But I don't think any of these songs would have been Shinedown songs. I think they were kind of aptly placed where they were with Smith and Myers. Do you feel the same way, Brent? You know, the thing about Smith and Myers is that we don't want, um, I mean, anybody's going to have their personal preference in the way that they would like to describe what Smith and Myers is. To me personally, um, it has nothing to do with Shinedown. The reality of that also is it's not a band and it's not a group. We look at Smith and Myers as exactly what it is, which is a duo. You know, I didn't go into it with the thought process of, I wonder if people are just going to think that this is a Shinedown song. It just happens to be on an acoustic guitar. And you've heard the project, mm -hmm. so you know that if you were to take it and put it side by side, I don't even know, for people that don't know who Shinedown is, and maybe even people that don't know who Smith & Myers is, if you are literally a brand new listener or fan, you probably wouldn't know it was the same right. guy singing because I didn't approach it like, here I go into a Shinedown project. This was a Smith & Myers project. And really for me and Zach, I think the two of us look at this, even though there's two EPs that came out in 2014, this really is the first Smith & Myers record. It just happens to be two volumes. Right, the, the double album. And, and why, did, why did you decide to do it that way, two, two separate records, rather than just one big, large, giant one? Because there's a there's a rhyme and a reason for the songs that are on volume gotcha. one, and there's a and there's a rhyme and a reason for the ones that are on volume two. When is two going to come out? Um, we are not allowed to say anything about that, <laughs> but I can tell people that they will probably get the awareness of volume two within a let's say a month from Friday. <laughs>
Okay. Um, I want to talk a little about, about your touring history because you've had s- some great tours um, and some killer shows, et cetera, et cetera. But did I see you guys open for Van Halen? Yes. Like, was it like the, the Sammy reunion tour, right? Yeah. I, I thought that it was you, but, but Zach, you weren't in the band at the time, were you? No, not yet. I literally joined the band right after that. So what was that? What, was that one of your first major tours, Brent? Uh, yeah. I mean, of that kind of you know, historic, legendary status. Mm-hmm. And believe me, man, it was, I'll tell you this straight up, it was trial by fire. I mean, you talk about being thrown into, you know, a situation where we were playing in clubs and some festivals here and there to have gotten on that tour and to literally be lucky to get a closet, a broom <laughs> closet for a for a dressing room. <laughs> um, that's, that's kind of what it was. Nothing against the band. I mean, they just had, you know, the people that sure. were running the tour and like Alan, that, they man. were like, yeah, yeah they're, they're like, you get this and you'll be, you'll be happy that you get this. But dude, it was, um, even then, man, it was the very first date that we played with them was in Chicago two nights at the United Center and there's a legendary ramp that you have to walk up and then walk down to go into the foyer like when you're going to stage and I mean the place was already half full when we were walking out there you know we got 28 minutes that's how that was our that was our set time <laughs> not 30 not 30 28 and you better hit that 28 too man you better not yeah. go a second over here's the other thing too i've never really mentioned this but there were two people on both sides of the stage at all time that held a clock pretty much like in front of you the whole time like <laughs> just pointing at it but the the beautiful thing about that tour was this eddie van halen's son wolfgang everyone calls him wolfie he was really young, like 11, 12 years old. And not the first night, but the second night at the United Center, they had these VIP sections. So nobody was really in there like when we were playing. Um, all these shows, by the way, were sold out. We did about 30 dates with them, everything to the rafters. And Wolfie, for whatever reason, was in the VIP section that second night. And then a couple of days later, um, we noticed him again hanging out there and then um over time probably 10 shows in i look i would look down and there's wolfie but eddie's next to him and you know wolfie liked the band you know and and then eddie started watching us and then eddie started kind of coming around us and (laughs) just and look man i i don't have any predisposed notions of who he was before or after because i liked Van Halen, but I wasn't like this crazy Not fan. fanatic, right? You know what I mean? I definitely was more of, an, of a Sammy era than David Lee Roth era. Um, so that was kind of cool for me because it was Sammy. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing against David Lee Roth. No, of course. Just a different, different animal. But man, once I kind of was able to hang around Eddie, that guy was a sweetheart, man. And, and, and you were very, very giving and approachable and... Um, you know, obviously the, the guy had a lot of demons um, and, you know, he fought through a lot of that. But I feel very, very fortunate that I was able to have that experience really early on because I saw both sides. I saw the side I saw the side of like you could be at that level and kind of, you know, be hard to deal with. Or you could be at that level and the actual artist was really, for all intents and purposes, just the artists were the ones that, yes, we're in this giant building every single night. We play for hundreds of thousands of people and what have you. But the guys in the band were really sweethearts, dude. They really were. And they were really good to us, man. That's cool. That's cool. What uh, What are some of your favorite tours that you've done, Zach, over the years? I mean, I, rem- I think the one I'll remember the most was our first arena headlining tour that we did in 2010 for Sound of Madness. Because, again, we were teetering on this kind of house of blues 2500 3000 seater and then with madness by the end of madness it was just got you know we were doing they were, they were asking us to do four and five nights mm. at these places we were like maybe we can i don't know like kind of amongst the the four of us maybe we could do arenas like smaller and it was like smaller like 
you know, minor league hockey arena type places, you know, held 8,000 people or whatever. But we went and did it and it sold amazingly. And I'll, I'll always remember that just because we got to like design a stage and like, you know, it was always <laughs> all this fun things. And now me and Brent are like big time into like me and Brent really get into designing, you know, production and stages. And back then we didn't know anything about it. But so we literally were like, hey, we want the set to look like this. But it looked like th- there was an earthquake and everything just kind of shifted to the right. <laughs> so our, all of our amps were like leaning. The drum riser looked like it was about to fall over, but like on purpose. So but it was a lot of fun. And then obviously, man, Kiss in Canada was amazing just to be in Canada with that band. And like, again, another band that you hear so many things about that everyone in that band was so incredibly kind to us. I mean, oh, uh, not just like, oh, hey, how you doing? Stop in the hallway and talk to you. I mean, like, overly kind to us. Like, you know, bit, go out of their way to be nice to us. And I thought that was really nice. And um, Maiden as well, the same thing. You know, it was like these these legendary acts that you that you see. That are, I don't know, man. Maiden might take the might take the cake. Yeah, they, 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 didn't, let fly, they didn't let us fly on their plane though. <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't fly on the Kiss jet. Let's talk about that, the Maiden tour. I forgot about that because that was fairly recent. That was over just the last few years, right? Yeah, 2017. Okay, so you, when you see Iron Maiden, and we we had a taste of it. We, we opened for them last year uh, in the stadium in L.A., Bank of California Stadium. They added us for one show. That's a whole different animal. We've, we've, we've done yeah. the Kiss Cruise. We've done the, the Soundwave with Metallica, both huge, gracious, great. But Maiden's a whole different world, it seems. What were your thoughts on, on being out with them? You said you, you learned a lot, Brent. Um, the, the fact of the matter was, is you have to go back to download 2016 when Steve Harris uh, caught the last few songs of our set. We had just recently signed with their booking agent of 39 years, John Jackson mm. and K2. So as we're coming off stage, John's like, come here, I want you to meet someone and it was Steve Harris. And I'm like, hey, Steve, it's nice to meet you. I got to take a piss and like running away <laughs> you know what I mean? because I had to go to the bathroom so bad. And then later coming in, the, the funny thing was, is that John had said, you know, Steve really liked what he saw. He's curious about if you guys would want to open up for them. They're doing a they're doing a UK tour. They had been to the they had played UK arenas in like eight years and they're going to do it in 2017. He was curious, like if you guys would be up for doing it with them. And I was like, whatever, dude, you know what I mean? Like, there's no way I'm never going to hear about this ever again. Right. (laughs) And lo and behold, man, he called us uh, about two months later after that. And he said, Hey, they want you to say yes or no to this tour in 2017. And I'm like, are you serious? Because it wasn't a couple of shows. It was 42 dates. Right. And yeah, it was a real tour. And uh, we said, are you kidding? Yes. And part of that tour also, man, is we got over there. And I think one of the reasons why they dug us is that from the very first night, um, we know who they are. Mm -hmm. We're respectful of who they are. But, you know, we have a hammer, too. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and I think that it was so funny to watch the front rows of these shows because everything was videoed, how you would see the fact that, you know, when they gave us an hour also wow. to play, which wow. was insane. Yeah. You know, and there was nobody. They don't need an opener. You know what I mean? They don't need you to open for them. Um, but they not only did they ask us to open for them um, in areas that they had not been back to. In a while, every show was sold out. You know, multiple nights in some of the biggest arenas in Europe and and in the UK. And so that you know, and when I say they gave us an hour, they gave us sixty minutes every every show, and that's a lot of time for an opener. Sure. So we just made a point to like go out there and and get them, no matter what we had to do, but be respectful of the fact that you are witnessing a fan base. And I'm not trying to take all of Zach's time here either. Cause he makes a good point about this. The fan base of iron maiden, you have people that have gone to 200, 300 shows. This is not a band that is an arena band. This is a stadium band. Yeah. This is a band that could go put a stage in the middle of the desert and have everybody show up. You're right. You know yeah. what I mean? 
probably even during a pandemic could do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. And it was just, but once again, you're talking about a four decade, 40 years, man, where this band and they are, they will show you how to do it right from the band all the way down to their crew. You could not have been on a more productive, educational, fun, like respectful tour. There's a reason why those gentlemen, they're where they are in their career and the men and women that work for them behind the scenes. You know, there's a lot of them that have been there for that 40 years, man, is mm -hmm. pretty monumental to be a part of. What'd you think, Zach? Did you ever come into contact with any of the guys, or, or how, how was it watching the shows and seeing kind of how they do things? Incredible, man! It was a part of it. <laughs> so, talk about fans. Like those fans are the most hardcore fans you ever see. I mean, like we've told Kiss, we play shows with Metallica. Like Iron Maiden fans are a different breed of person. They always they you go into a city. They take over a city. Like if you walk around the city that they're playing in the UK or Europe or wherever that day, just everywhere. It's like it's like three Iron Maiden shirts per five people. You know what I mean? Like just saying this. Yeah, we we uh, we lost halfway through. So yeah, just just continue with what you were saying. You're saying when you, when they when they go into a town, they take over the town. There's three Iron Maiden shirts for every freaking person. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just one of those things to where you see them kind of take over a city. I mean, they go into a place and it's like, it's Iron Maiden Day. No matter what city they're in, it's Iron Maiden Day. Like you, the, the crowd and this, like you said, you meet, like Brent said, you meet people and they're like, yeah, the, tonight's show 297. And you're yeah. like, what? <laughs> and they don't, and you see the same people at every show. So like they take their whole year vacation, which I don't know who gets a month and a half off from work for vacation, but <laughs> you see the front row of every single show. And then, you know, the guys backstage are incredible. We, we called Bruce uncle Bruce. Cause he just kind of looks like everyone's uncle. He's in catering in the same cargo pants that he wears on stage, <laughs> reading the newspaper, like glasses on. And I remember test texting Austin Dickinson and going, Hey man, does, does your dad do this every day? He's like, yeah, man. He's like, he's just like, complete just the old dude and catering just hanging out talking to people you know and just the nicest and i remember going up and talking to him one day and i said hey man i go you know what do you do like i see all you guys leaving separately after the shows what do you guys do because we all kind of go do different things he's like i love trains and planes obviously so like we had a day off i don't remember where we were in the uk but we had two days off and he was going to this place called york in the uk because there was an old train station there that he wanted to go see all the trains and he goes, oh, he goes, I'm, I'm a nightmare for production. And I go, what do you mean? He's like, I'll just show up and like text them and be like, hey, I'm here. So, like he goes off like on his own. I love it. <laughs> no security guy, no tour manager, no assistant. This dude just goes and does his own thing, takes his own plane, takes his own train, whatever, <laughs> gets to wherever he wants to go, however he wants to get there. And then we'll literally just like text, you know the office assistant the day of and go, Hey, I'm at the train station. Somebody come pick me up. <laughs> it's like the, the biggest, you know, the singer in the biggest metal band of all time. Yeah. And he, he's the most casual human being that you'll ever meet. And then, you know, somebody like we get their assistant coming in one day and going, Hey, we have a day off tomorrow. Steve wants to know if you guys want to play soccer. Some of us are like, yeah, dude, we'll go play soccer. Like we've played a couple times, and they're like, "I did no. not say that I would yeah, go no. play soccer." Just <laughs> so everyone knows. I said, "Hell no." But a couple of us, a couple of us, a couple of us were like, "Yeah, we played soccer a couple times." And then you see the assistant be like, "Oh no, 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 no!" Like, do you play soccer like regularly? Like, no. He's like, "Yeah, you can't, you can't come." <laughs> we're like, "Why?" And then so my my guitar tech, who does play soccer regularly, went and played, and I was like, "How was it?" He's like. This is like a major league. So like, there's no joking. This isn't, we're not fucking around. Yeah. <laughs> he takes this shit really fucking seriously, man. But he like, held his own. Like, there's no like, oh, let's just, let, let's just kick a, kick the ball around. Like, no, motherfucker. There's teams. You're on this team. I'm on this team. We have jerseys. Uniforms, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, listen, dude, this is a, like, so I'm glad we didn't go. Sparky threw up. He ran. He wasn't hung over or anything. Like he ran so hard. He just, he, 
from being out of breath. So it's <laughs> yeah, like we're smoking a pack of Marlboro Lights a day. Yeah, <laughs> he's sparky. He's been on the road since he was twelve. Yeah. Of course, he threw up. Also, also true. But uh, to go along with what Brent said, I mean, I say this. Everyone's like, "Oh, we have the greatest fans in the world. We have the greatest fans in the world." And I say, "No, you don't. Iron Maiden has mm-hmm. the greatest fans in the world." So it's it. It was truly. It was an experience that I'll never forget, and the only time I I get nervous going on stage in front of those fans because they will love you or they will eat you alive. Yeah, and they treat they treated us very kindly. Yeah, that's one of those things when you're going in front of Iron Maiden's crowd. We were we were feeling the same same thing. And it was it was great too because when we got to the dressing room, there was a big barrel of Trooper beer. Yeah, uh, you know, thanks for the, doing this from you know Rod and the boys type thing from the manager. And it's, they just really make you feel welcome because, like you said, they don't need anybody to open for them. We're just filling time for for the night so they can sell more merch, basically, right? But I will say <laughs> to, the fans, to the fans, I think they just feel like that if you weren't there, Iron Maiden would go on at like 730. <laughs> yeah, it's your fault. You're just something in the way <laughs> of them and their favorite band. But. It's like it's like this cruel joke that they play. They don't need an opener. They're just like, let's see if these guys get bottles of piss thrown at them. Yeah, let's try. But I will, like I'll say though, man, that very very first, I made sure that everybody in our band flew in, and we had, and you know, we were able to do this because we were a little bit more financially sound at the time. But used to you had to fly in. You were lucky if you could fly in the day of the show and then go straight to the first show. If you're talking about you know overseas out of America. Like especially Europe and what have you, we were able to because we were writing the beginning phases of our last album, Attention, Attention. So we had just started the writing process. So we actually were able to leave the studio to go do this tour, which was something we don't normally do. Normally, it's like, okay, it's time to make a record. You take the year and make the record. Yeah. This we were kind of at the beginning stages of writing. And then we had to all look at each other and go, we've got to go do this tour now. Um, so we went. It actually was great for perspective. And we have to thank really the the Iron Maiden audience because the last song on Attention Attention, which is the finale cut of the record, which is a song called Brilliant, it was inspired by the Iron Maiden audience hmm. of that whole tour when we came back. But the thing was, we had, I made sure everybody had four days in Antwerp before the first show just to get acclimated with everything. We're at the hotel. We were right there. And I thought to myself, we will be lucky with an hour set by the there's about a 10 song set that's an hour yeah. for us i was like by the sixth song hopefully half of the building will be filled up in most of these shows that was my mindset i was like hopefully like half the room by the time we get to show you know to song six it'll be you know half full we got out there i walked you know we all have our thing that we do before we get on stage with each other and I got up there, lights went down, first song hits. I looked up at the audience for the very first time. I never, ever look at the audience sure. before. I, I don't go in the middle of the day. I don't, normally, I don't watch any of the opening bands all the time and stuff like that. Like I'll walk up when it's time to get on stage. I want to see the audience. I don't look at them until I get up on stage. When the lights hit the audience and I could see how many people were there from the downbeat of the first song, whole place was stacked wow. to the rafters. And I was like... Oh, it's on. <laughs> I wasn't like, I, I I wasn't. And I think that that's why they gave us respect kind of right out of the gate, because once again, you know, we've got a hammer too. Right. you know, you can't go up there and be timid, man. Nope. You've got to go up there, be respectful, but you've got to go up there. They've given you an hour. Show everybody in that room why Iron Maiden asked you to that's come right. to this tour and gave you an hour. You better show them why. Yeah. Exactly. So it's all on how you look at it. You can't be timid at all, for sure. But uh, as we start to, to, to wind down here, you mentioned Shinedown 7. So how is the writing process for you guys when you can't be in the same room? Or is this always the way you write records? Do you always write them separately? Or do you sometimes do you get together in the same room? Or are you guys doing this over Zoom now? How, how are you putting it together? Definitely not doing the, the Zoom thing. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, Zach will kind of send some stuff periodically. You know, on the last record, it started with me and Eric. We kind of get in there and start kind of figuring some things out, seeing like what the sounds are. And then everybody, you know, we start bringing people in. Um, But uh, this time around, obviously, Zach's going to be coming in sooner than later. Um, Barry's usually one of the he kind of comes in in the back half. I know for the very first time we're going to bring our 
kind of the fifth member of the band in the studio. Dave Bassett's going to come to Charleston for a couple of weeks here in the next month or so. We're kind of we're kind of figuring that out right now, but we have to be together. Mm -hmm. Like there's no like we like we we still got to get in the same room with one another. So and it's a collective, you know. There, there there's no I, there's not an agenda. It's just let's get in here when it's time to go. And right now it's it's time to go. Getting time. So for volume one, I guess kind of the last question: What's your favorite song on it? I know there are ten children for you, but when you hear this certain song it's the one that kind of gets you rolling i mean pro volume one for me is is probably not mad enough just because the subject matter of the song and the depth of the song and what it's about and kind of how quickly it came um but also panic is i love panic as a song i just think it's it's fun it's really loose it's kind of you know, in a way, a little bit slapstick but in a way we're kind of talking about social things that are happening in the world right now so it's it's you know, to have, but I don't think Prince ever really written lyrics like that. So I, I'm, I'm a fan of both of those songs for, for Volume One for me. So I'd say Not Mad Enough and Panic are a bit of a tie. Brent, what is your favorite song of Volume One? Probably. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of go with the same approach as Zach has. It's, um, it's interesting with the song Not Mad Enough because, in a lot of ways, more than one, I wish the song hadn't been written because of you know truly what it is about um but at this at, in the same breath of that like zach was saying earlier it is a song about right and wrong and it's also taken a, a life of its own internally before the rest of the world hears it this friday for us it's about a lot of what is not right in the world people know what's right and wrong and you know, that statement of you're not mad enough, it's starting to, to hold true even more um, for a lot of different subject matter. But that song specifically, you know, was written about a man that lost his life on national television and there was no reason for it. It's still, I think it haunts a lot of people because of what happened. Um, and as a species as a race as people just in general we're better than that man like we're so much better we're so much better Are you talking than that. With george floyd yeah, yeah. gotcha because that's what the song because that's i wrote the song i wrote the lyrics it, it, it they came to me in a flood i was finishing up the first week once dave bassett got back to the studio with me we took the first week to kind of review everything because we still had three songs to write and record when dave got back before i left and we took that first week we made sure that like all the vocals from when we left that it was all there before we moved into the next phase so it was a lot to go through but i remember going to my hotel at the end of the week and i never turn my television on in my hotel room i, I mean i just i don't do it um and i was, had been in that hotel room for you know 18 weeks at that point and for whatever reason, I remember that night I turned the television on and it was all over the news and it was happening in real time. And I was just heartbroken and, and devastated and disgusted and, and just I, all these emotions just flew at me. And, you know, the, the song wrote itself in a lot of ways. The words came very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then I brought it to everybody. You know, that was a Friday. And then I didn't go back to the studio until the Monday. I presented it to everybody and we 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 recorded it. But the thing is about that song, there is a part of me, a huge part of me that wished that it didn't that sure, it didn't have to have been written, you know, because I would have much rather the man to still be alive and to be with his family. Right. But in the same breath of that, there's a decision that has to be made with songs like that where you can't bury your head in the sand. If if you if you know you need if you know what right and wrong is and you know you're establishing what is right and you're calling people out on it, then you know don't don't push yourself off to the side because it doesn't work for your brand mm -hmm. or because it doesn't work for what you think people might think of you for being outspoken about it. You know what's right and wrong. Do the right thing. Well, well said, man. It's a great song. Like I said, it's it's a, it's a, it's a really fun record, a great record, an easy record to listen to, and uh, it's great talking to you guys, man. It's been absolutely. Uh, it's been a while. Hopefully, we will get a chance to meet up and rock again 
somewhere, someplace. We were supposed to this year. Yeah, that's right. We had a couple of festivals. Are you doing anything this year or have you decided to just kind of stay kind of put for the moment until, you know, the beginning of 2021? Well, see, I've been I've been working since March. You know, we we wrestling every week in front of no people. And just now they're starting to let some people in. We played a couple shows last week in North Dakota and South Dakota where there's like less than a thousand cases and, you know, temperature checks at the door and 35 percent capacity and that sort of a thing. And they went well. It was it was awesome to be back on stage again. You know, obviously, like you said, you got to be very careful about it. Yeah. Um, but it seems like some of those parts of the country where they're not very uh, case heavy are doing shows. So, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. And because uh, we're working on a new record too, so hopefully, um, hopefully it all works out, man. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you next year, man. I know our, our I know our paths are going to cross. So we, we we definitely are looking forward to seeing you, giving you a big giant hug, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We'll be able to hug again. All right, dudes. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Cheers, Chris. man. Take care. Thanks, Zach. You too. Thanks again.